everybody, this is Lizzie from the Westerverse. Thank you for tuning in. These are my campaign diaries for the Guardians of Fahal. And today we are on episode 20. Oh my god. Holy crap. I feel like I say that a lot. <laughs> I just realized the numbers are so high. But this time it does feel like it's really high. So um, I do record these a little bit earlier than they air. And I did a bunch of recordings all in one go where I feel like it was every week I was recording like multiple campaign diaries. And then I basically took like over a month long break. So it really, I, I did kind of forget the number of like, where am I at recording these? Oh my God, 20, we've done 20 of these. Oh my God. So yeah, um, I guess, uh, I don't know if you guys want life updates and these or not, but I'll, I'll give you one. So uh, for, where we are in the Westerverse timeline, where it's it's almost September, um, summer's finally wrapping down. Um, a lot of us are kind of starting to rejoin other D&D campaigns that we had before that were basically put on halt because of COVID. Um, we're all still pretty much working remote, a lot of us, and trying to maintain social distancing and keeping our health up. So uh, none of us have had COVID, um, knock on wood as I say that, um, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're trying to be careful and we really don't want to, you know, be people that make it worse. But anyway, so life has been getting kind of busy again. I feel like in the summer, there's a lot of times I was just out in nature, so I wasn't like home recording campaign diaries, unlike when I first started just doing a big push of these, there was nothing going on. And now life is kind of resuming a little bit. So I'm trying to, you know, keep up with these. Uh, I hope you guys are still enjoying them. Um, if you have stuff that you kind of want me to cover more in these, please leave a comment in Patreon or, you know, message us on social media because I, I, I have my own vision of kind of what these should be like, but if they're just not connecting or there's more stuff that you want, you know, if you like the heavy spoiler stuff, um, you know, just, just let me know. I would appreciate feedback. Um, but that's enough, enough rambling to start with. Um, okay. So for this one, we're talking about episode nine, part two. Um, they had just agreed to travel with the Kenku children back to their village, um, after their encounter with the gnolls. And basically it's a, um, it's a very, I like the dynamic. Iki is the little brother and basically the, the just, yay, everything's fun and shiny and I like it. And poor May. May is on like the cusp of adulthood. But, you know, being like a, a teenager, she, she's not quite fully there emotionally yet. And she's just been given this, this big thing of, oh, I have to uh, meet with, you know, I have to bring these outsiders to our our sacred onsei, the voice of her village. It's like a god that's intimidating. Oh my goodness. Um I I don't know. As as NPCs, I really like Iki and Mei. I like the brother-sister dynamic. And also I feel like a lot of times when you see it in stories, it's a uh it's an older brother and then a little sister. And um, it's just kind of cute to see it be like a little brother and then an older sister. Also, I, I kind of have this thing where like, I really enjoy, I don't want to say enjoy. I, I like having different portrayals of uh, teenage girls. And um, I, I think it's because um, as a whole, 
I, I feel like there's a lot of times teenage girls are portrayed in media very badly and they're made to be very like annoying. And as somebody who was a teenage girl, I'm not going to say they aren't annoying. Um, <sighs> there's certainly moments I look back on being that young and cringe at my attitude, but a lot of times it's, it's overwhelming and there's a lot of, um, burgeoning emotions on like, what does it mean to be an adult? Who am I? And I think I kind of was, um, I think I was foreshadowing this a, a little bit. Um, May wants to become one of the, uh, sentinel guards that help guard the village from threats. And, uh, that's why she had some throwing knives. That's why she, uh, ultimately, went out with Iki, even though she thought it was a bad idea. It was because she kind of was like, no, I can, I can prove myself. I can, I can do this. And she couldn't, unfortunately. So thank goodness the adventurers were there to help. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I kind of like her as an NPC. I feel for her. She's, she's like 14 trying to be an adult and not necessarily getting taken seriously and talked down to, um, you know, it's, it's a tough place to be in life. Uh, one thing I've realized lately on a rabbit rabbit trail, one thing I've realized lately is that my thing as a DM is I love coming up with backstories and side stories and future stories for the NPCs I create. Like, not all of them, but a lot of them. Like, I have stuff for Ponder that's kind of a whole thing. I have stuff for Ben. Um, I have stuff, obviously, for May. And we're really far ahead in the series, so I can't really say, give specifics. But I was talking about this with, like, my friend Lauren, who is kind of my confidant in a lot of stuff. But there is, like, two characters that kind of have, like, a a side dynamic together. And I'm just like, I want to write like an entire book series just about their adventures together. But nobody would probably want to read it. But maybe they would. I don't know. But that's the kind of DM I have. I, I like having NPCs that are very much, you know, they're, they're doing their own things. They don't just exist like in Skyrim or in Zelda where they have their shop or their whatever. And then you give them the quest and then they go out. Like they all have their own dreams. The world is moving on. They can all in, interact with it in their own little incremental ways. And I just find that kind of fun. It feels a little bit more engaging than just like, here is your quest. Go humans, go. And since I can't really do, um, Go humans. I just realized I said that. Go humans. That does not sound natural. If an NPC said that, you'd just be like, what? Excuse me, sir? Are you a human? Are you a humanoid? That's a weird thing to say. Um, but I, I feel like if the NPCs are a little bit more in depth, uh, it kind of makes up for the fact that I can't do a lot of voices. Um, so to make them interesting. Um, but otherwise, I really loved the Kenku village that I came up with. So, um, the reason I came up with this is because I really like Kenkus. I think they're very interesting, and I like Japanese mythology. I like a lot of mythologies, but I, I do like Japanese mythology. I wish I could say I was an expert on it, or I know about it. I know as much about it as I do Greek mythology, um... But I didn't really grow up with Japanese mythology, so, like, kind of learning it later in life, there's just so much stuff that I'm like, this is amazing. Um, needs to be in more stuff. But, um, I don't really like the stuff that, that, that wizards came up with for Forgotten Realms or whoever created Forgotten Realms. I don't like the fact that Kenku basically, like, 
are cursed because they're like their their species got cursed um, by some dark god, and it was because they were sneaky and tricksy, and that's kind of a trait that they have. I find that a little problematic in some ways, a little a little concerning. So I decided I, I like the idea of some of them not being able to speak because of a curse, like a magical curse, but like I don't think that Kenku inherently are necessarily more sneaky or tricksy because of the fact that they're Kenku. Um, but Kenku Village is specifically made up of refugees from one of the other continents. Uh, Taewon is the name of the continent, which I have some stuff developed for it, but not tons of stuff. Um, and it is very different. Uh, the Meyer Empire has a combination of like Mediterranean cultures and um, then some expanding upwards and more north into like Eastern or not Eastern, Western Europe. But I feel like Taewon has a combination of more of like uh, Persian culture and then also uh, maybe some aspects of Japanese culture and other spots of it. Because the Taewon's continent is actually split technically into like two. Not peninsulas. I, I can't think of the term for it, but, uh... Anyway, you didn't come to hear about the geography of my fictional world. Uh, anyway, so they're refugees from this other continent, and they brought over a lot of their own vegetation, which is why there's bamboo. Um, and honestly, like, I... Did this have to be there? No. But bamboo forests are so cool. Um, a couple of years ago, my husband and Josh and I were in Japan and we went to this bamboo forest uh, out like in Kyoto and it was amazing. It was one of my favorite places to walk around. Like, and it was really crowded. It's a very popular touristy spot, but it was, it was stunning. Like if you search up pictures of like bamboo forest, Japan, it probably like Google search images will like, if you look at the information, it will be tagged as, you know, this place. I can't, I can't remember the name of it. I don't want to look it up, uh, but it's really beautiful. Um, and the Kenku village obviously has surrounded by bamboo and they have a lot of their own plants. They have mochi. So they have uh, sweet rice that they grow there and are able to cultivate. They have uh, rice patches as well. Um, and they have a lot of water flowing through the area, which is make perfect for their rice. Um, and one thing I realized, okay, so I, I don't know if this is a, this is probably a faux pas. And as a DM, I want to be honest about this stuff because I, full disclosure, um, I, so one of the reasons I decided to make the Kenku have some Japanese aspects is because they are, uh, they feature in Japanese mythology, and so I was co-opting a lot of things from Japanese culture to kind of pay homage to it. And I was like, of course I have to highlight mochi. Mochi's delicious. Um, everything from Japan is delicious. Um, but then I realized, wait, they're birds. Could they even eat mochi with their beaks? And, and that could be a writer's faux pas for co-opting this part of Japanese culture uh, onto a mythical creature that is associated with Japanese mythology, but not necessarily thinking about the biology of the fact that Ken Kenku eat mochi, because mochi you kind of have to chew. Infamously, if you don't chew it properly, you can choke. Um, I didn't really think about that, though, when I, when I did this. So... Um, I don't know, because I'm like, birds have their beaks, but they also have something, like, they have, I think some birds have, like, little rows of teeth inside their beaks to help them, like, chew things up finer, so maybe, I don't know, like, maybe I'm overthinking it, and it's like, they're fantasy creatures, it doesn't matter, but I, I kind of want to stick to realism, but 
anyway, somehow these these Kenku can eat mochi, and we're going to call it good because mochi is delicious. Um, so... Also, we're going we're gonna to have a little thoughts here on the Nightingale, because obviously they meet the Nightingale. The Nightingale is the kind of patron, um, not, not deity, but it's sort of like a deity to these people. Like, they, they basically respect her like the elder and like their, their champion spirit to kind of protect them um, and a guiding figure. Uh, and the, the totems all have very different personalities. Um, and I definitely based her off of Officer uh, Hooks from Police Academy. I don't know if anyone's seen Police Academy. They came out in the 80s. So uh, maybe my, my other millennials friends who listen to this will catch this. But um, in Police Academy, there is a police officer. She is this very adorable, petite uh, black woman, and she has a very soft-spoken voice. Um, But then when she needs to get things done, she just like goes full business boss mode. And I remember watching Police Academy when I was younger and just like, this woman is an icon. I love her so much. (laughs) So I wanted wanted the Nightingale to kind of channel that, you know, very soft and sweet. Um, and I also, I also thought it was kind of fun. I like playing with the expectations. You know, you'd think the Nightingale has like a very sweet, um, voice and she does. She has a beautiful voice. Obviously it's limited to my voice, but the Nightingale canonically in the universe has a very beautiful voice like you when she's talking, but I like the idea of her being soft spoken because I think a lot of times when people think of like this big voice, you know, it's, uh, it's gotta be commanding and presence and like, yeah, but like, that's kind of, I feel like the power of when you really are a good storyteller is when you even have a soft voice, you know, you can kind of like draw people in even with it. Like you're so good that even though you're quiet and you don't demand their attention, like you can get it anyway. Cause you're just that talented. Um, I don't know. So I, I really like the Nightingale. Um, Overall, I thought it was a really moving moment, um, and I f- could tell that for well, for one, because it was one of um, Angie's totems. So Josh was just like, uh, I, "This is one of the moments." I don't really want to record Guardians of Fahal, um, but at the same time, I really love Josh's face when this whole interaction happened. He was just like so excited and like happy, looking like, "Oh my god, it's the Nightingale." Um, Andrew was so nervous and like serious and the nightingale was just like, no, I'm super, I'm super happy you're here. You know, I love you guys. Well, she didn't say that, but you know, she's, she's, she's rooting for him. So it was, it was really a a moving moment because like uh, the other totems were either like indifferent or outright hostile to them so far. Um, And so it was kind of a cool moment for them to have like one of the totems actually be like excited that they were here. Um, and the Nightingale is definitely, um, her personality, uh, the way I, the way I conceptualized her is like, if she's a storyteller, um, I, I didn't want it to just be some great sage who has all the answers. I mean, she certainly is smart and has all the answers and knows a bunch of stories, but I also like kind of giving the totems like personalities that, um, borrow from like real, like, they, they feel like real people, and maybe this is pulled from my own limited experience, but, like, I just really wanted to give her the personality of, like, a fangirl. Like, you know, the, the type of person who reads a piece of media and is just totally in love with the characters, you know, they're invested in it. They're like, yes, I want to see them succeed. I am here for it. I will wear your shirt, you know, that has your saying on it, because I am here for you. I want you to succeed. Um, and that's basically how the Nightingale is. She is, she is a fangirl. 
girl. She just wants a good story, and she's rooting for their success. Um, and honestly, out of all of the totems, the Nightingale is probably the most similar to me um, because I'm also a massive fangirl. Like, if I'm into something, I am, like, into it. Like, I love talking about it. I love talking about all the different ways the stories can go. I like talking about the characters and their struggles and their personalities. So I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to pull from this. This Nightingale and me have this in common. I like it. And it makes her really fun to play. I, I find it... Okay, so in my head, I feel like each of the totems is kind of giving them a lesson or an opportunity to learn something about being a leader or um, also something that is going to kind of spur their own personal development um, because I find that interesting. So like the totems aren't necessarily going to just give them like MacGuffin quests. You know, the, the thing is, is it's going to have to be something. They learn something from it. Like, you know, like the the... The point of the totems and Hans and Franz seeking his atonement is basically to show that he not only can be welcomed back into the tribe and earn their forgiveness, but also the totems are testing to see, like, does he have what it takes to become a leader? Like, can he go the distance or whatever that they need him to do? Um, so the Nightingale specifically gave him, like, a, was trying to come up with a test based on uh what sort of tales he picked that he liked and I feel like uh what kind of stories somebody likes can reveal like a lot about them and not like in a negative way like in a positive way um most of the stories that I like full disclosure a lot of the ones I really like have good romance in it or really good characters where like they there's a lot of emotional connection about communication and changing and I guess you could read into that in my personality those those stories touch me in a very deep way. So for the Nightingale, she wanted to figure out what kind of stories uh, moved Hans and Franz. And I could tell Andrew was very confused when I asked him this because he was like, I had written a document full of short stories, uh, like a couple, like a page or two of like the myths of the totems that I had come up with. And basically, um, I think he expected... I wanted him to, like, pick one of the stories from the myths, which he hadn't read all of or he had, and it had been a long time. It's like, no, no, no. What kind of story would be important to Hans and Franz, like, as a character? Like, what kind of stories would he gravitate towards? Um, and he gave his answer, and she basically uh, told him that, like, uh, you know, we'll go f make the stories of our people well-known. Um, and <laughs> he was completely, like, flummoxed as that as a mission. Now... I, as a player, know a lot of the other challenges and the probably most likely course of what the totems are going to ask them to complete. And yes, the Nightingale did actually give him a bit of a challenging one for his character. Um, and I also thought it was funny because I knew he would take it the most literally and basically go out like a soapbox preacher trying to spread the word of the Bendaya. So I, I kind of uh, could tell he was freaking out a bit. and <laughs> was like, you should not have me do this. I am not good at it. Um... I, I like, I gave a hint of like, you know, find, find a speaker for you. Like, you know, you can use somebody else to do this for you. Um, and I think, um, for me as a, as a creative person and a writing major, um, I, I mean, I've got to make my English degree worth something. Okay. And like basically in all the lit classes I sat through, which I enjoyed cause I'm that kind of nerd. Um, you would see patterns and logic behind why certain stories were memorable. Like usually, um, 
stories that made an impact, they either hit at the right time or they just tapped into something of like the public consciousness that was really important. Um, or sometimes they were just so simple or universe spoke to some universal truth that like they last. Uh, like for instance, a lot of people, a lot of reasons Shakespeare's stories tend to still be talked about. And yes, there is a lot of about study into why these stories? Why this? Sometimes it's not because they're the best stories. It's because it's what people pick from that deciding culture of who gets to pick what's best. But anyway, um, like for Shakespeare, for example, is a lot of people are like, eh, you know, he's not really that good. But he is actually good, I would argue. And a lot of his stories, I think, are memorable because he taps into a lot of those deep human anxieties and emotions. And if you read Shakespeare and you see plays performed, like even if you kind of are a little put off by the language, um, there are some universal things about it that uh, kind of just speak to people in general, like anxieties about fate, how much control do you have over everything, um, the the doubts of your place in the universe, and also like the conflicting emotions of humans and human desires. Those are things I feel like are universal and humans tend to relate to. And we put a lot of that in our stories that make it. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like that's why she, I, I picked that as, as a quest for them. So I guess to me, like, I'm kind of challenging them to be like, what is the story of the Bendaya that you will create? Uh, what is the mythos? What is the, what is the legend? Like, what's the stories that people will think about your people? Because I think stories are very important. Um, stories can be used to, like, negatively have people, like, remember. Like, for instance, um... Um, if you have a story about a group of people that was written by their enemies, then that story is probably not going to flatter them very much. But if you have a story that is written by the people themselves, there will usually be a lot more nuance to it. And so I kind of, uh, I like that as an idea of a challenge. Like, you know, you got to create the narrative of how you want society to view you to an extent. And yes, is that actually reflect who you are? No, but it is, it can be meaningful and it can be a very powerful unifying tool in a way to kind of introduce you into the public consciousness, basically, of like how your people are viewed. So it's kind of an interesting and little existential, it's a bit of a, it's an interesting and an existential challenge. So, you know, it's kind of a deep thought on that. Um, but uh, moving on from the, the purpose of stories and that theory, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Um... <laughs> The Nightingale is really bad at directions uh, because the, she doesn't move around a tons and the and the um, the Kenku don't move around a lot either. So it's probably been a couple decades or centuries since like you know she's visited anybody in the Bendaya. And also like the Bendaya really used to be a lot more independent tribes and only unified like about 27, 28 years ago where they are now. Before that, their entire Iron Lake Valley region was made up of a lot of independent collective tribes and they would infight with each other a lot. And then, um, and sometimes like individually ally more with like the people of the Iron Valley that have more of the, um, dominant culture from the Meyer Empire. So anyway, like the Nightingale kind of is like the Bendaya are basically like to her, yes, the Bendaya refers to the goddesses. Um, and Hans and Franz mean it as the goddesses and the people, but really the 
people as the unified collective that Hans and Franz view them as is very recent. Like, that is not how it's always been. So, um, she doesn't really know and hasn't been keeping in tons of contact with them. And I think I kind of messed this up a little bit because it made it sound like, um, you know, she, the, 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 like the existing leadership structure of the Bendaya, like they always are going around and like, you know, every so many years when there's a, the Nightingale seat is going to get replaced, one of them comes. And that's not quite accurate. Like the Nightingale will give her favor to anybody who's worthy. And it's not like a, not like a, she's specifically picking someone to be the leader of their village necessarily. Um, it's more of like a, can you prove that you're, you and I, like I would view you as a, a champion or a representative of me. So uh, that, I think I messed up a little bit and it's probably because in my mind, I kind of had forgotten that their tribe is not really like, their collective group is only like 20, 27, 28 years old, which just in hindsight, I'm 29. So basically imagine a group of people that used to kind of be more, uh, fractured and infighting and individualistic towards certain tribes are now kind of a collective people. And it's only been around since like 25 or 29 years or less than that. And you know, like I, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not a established thing. It's not super old. So, um, I kind of made it bad there. That's one of those things about like when you are just slowly developing stuff over time, it can get really good and really deep and you can make connections, but sometimes you mess up earlier. So I apologize for that. For all you fans who want everything to be super detailed and correct, I cannot promise this will not happen again. Um, okay, so the Nightingale's bad at directions. They, you know, she's she's like, I don't really know. I haven't talked to anybody there from the village, but she does mention the hive. Oh my god, the hive is not that far away i mean in terms of the continent from the nightingale it's probably like she thinks like two to three weeks away from where they live so you know it's not it's not actually that far like a little little under a month of travel to get there well and then you got to find it um and she kind of gave some vague directions um but yeah the hive oh i was so excited to drop this so basically for a long long time i knew that the hive was gonna be this big collection of people from the bendaya and craftsmen and who are, are coming there to work under the bee Okay, so like some of the totems are more in groups of people. Um, and if you think about it, that would make sense because um, like, you know, a bee, a bee on its own is not that special. A bee needs a hive. So you gotta have a bunch of people and a bunch of like uh, maybe celestial beans kind of buzzing around there. Nightingale's the same way. Um, because like for storytelling, you kind of need somebody to tell stories to. So it makes sense that for totems like the bee and the, the, for the bee and the nightingale, that they would be in more of collective, a bigger group. Um, so there's, there are people from their village that go to the hive and train under them. And, um, it's really funny because when this came up, as soon as I mentioned this, like, again, this is one of those times I wish we had cameras. So Andrew had, like, this little knowing smile on his face as soon as it brought up about meeting people versus Josh was just not catching up what what that implication meant uh, for, for people. And this went on for, like, 
three minutes and he was just talking about oh no like you know what if they're rough to you brother and Andrew's like no no, no I'm not worried about it I mean my character is but I'm not worried about it and it's just this little knowing smile and Josh just kept talking and talking and then all of a sudden it just snapped and you can hear it in the recording because all of us started laughing because Josh's face just dropped and was like oh no oh no uh and basically what happened is, is Josh realized that if they are going to the hive and there are people from the Bendaya there that have an affinity for the bee and our craftsmen, then that probably means that his Hans and Franz's old girlfriend is there. Ah, I love this shit. Oh my God. I love it. I love it. Josh did this to himself and this is not punishment. He wrote that he, I'm not using this as like a vindictive punishment. Okay. I'm not that type of person. I'm actually really excited for this meetup because I feel like it's going to be juicy and good character moment stuff. Um, but Josh did this to himself. I asked them, Hey, like way at the beginning of the campaign, uh, was there anybody you knew from the village? Like, did you have any friends? And basically they said no, but yes, kind of, they ended up having like, um, um, a rivalry with this other set of twins um, because of course <laughs> and they were sisters and one of them wanted to become the chief as well and she was studying under the wolf which is war um, and then there was one studying under the bee and Hans and Franz actually mentioned her in passing I think a couple episodes ago at the, around the fire with Nora about how she didn't pay him any notice or whatever and then he finally made something and got her attention and they had like a summer love basically for like uh, and then th his brother fucked up and got kicked out and he left with him and he made like this, this, uh, declaration promise of like, I'll come back for you. Like, you know, like a dumb 12, 12 and 13 year old would do. Uh, so he hasn't seen her since then. And honestly, even Josh told me, he's like, no, I think Hans and Franz forgot about her. And I was just like, like at first was mad. And then I was like, no. I'm, I'm just not thinking about her anymore. I've moved on with my life and stuff. So imagine like there's somebody that you had like a high school, like a middle school sweetheart and you end on like very dramatic terms with no closure. And then you're going to see him again like 13 years later. Oh, man. You don't even know. Like they probably moved on. They probably have a family. But like what if that tension is still there? Um... And I just, I just love it. I even love the fact that I got to narrate the, the Nightingale being there for this conversation. She's just eating birdseed like it's popcorn. Like, yes. I mean, she likes the shit. Like, if, if she's based on me and there's, like, this trashy romantic thing going on, like, yeah, I love it. Give me that drama to unfold. I'm excited. Oh, God. I, oh, I was waiting so long for that sucker punch to come up. And poor Josh. Like, Josh is nervous but excited about it. So eventually that will come to pass and it'll be, I feel like, one of the good moments of the game. I know what this girl is doing and everything is going on. I will not spoil it, but I do have her stuff all figured out. Um, and it will be really, really fun. I am excited for this, but that's a ways off. Um, okay, yeah. And then the, the guards kind of come back. The rangers of the area come back and basically say that the monsters are harpies. Harpies! Oh, harpies are kind of dangerous. They can be potential party killers if people don't make their saves. Um, and a good opposite to the nightingale. I like the idea of the nightingale being this creature that uses their beautiful voice to share stories and preserve culture. And then there's like the harpies who use their voices to just murder people. It's kind of just fun. It's not really that deep. I just thought they were kind of a fun low-level villain to throw at them. But uh, 
um, yeah, I think we're going to leave it there for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up on Patreon or share it on social media. We would really appreciate it. Uh, if you have questions, like something I didn't cover and you want me to answer, please go ahead and reach out on social media. You can tweet. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram at the Westerverse. Um, also, uh, if you really, really like us and you have some extra change floating around, uh, you could support us on Patreon. We have an extra podcast called Talk Dungeon to Me, and for a dollar a month, you can listen to us talk about how to play the game D&D, and this isn't like a, this. if you're not playing it this way, you're playing it wrong. It's more of we share our experiences over the years as players and DMs and like what you can do if you're stuck on certain things. It's really fun. It's a little bit closer to actually what our real life conversations are like outside of Guardians of Fall, because we do sit around and just debate D&D stuff with each other all the time. It's fun. But anyway, thank you for tuning in. Uh, next episode, we're going to be talking about um, them leaving Akatoa um, Akatori Village, and on their quest to find the Harpies. Ooh. See you next time.